Welcome to Ikigai Stories. I'm Sam Yushio. The goal of this podcast is to showcase people who are living with intention, working hard to align actions with priorities, and ultimately to provide a platform of inspiration for those seeking to live a life rooted in purpose. Dragos Agzent is the CEO of Novo Fogo, a global cachaça company that Forbes calls a, quote, case study in conscientious capitalism, unquote. With the distillery in Mojetes, Brazil, and headquarters in the Seattle area, Novo Fogo delivers a high-quality, USDA-certified organic spirit for cocktail lovers of all kinds. Cachaça, Brazil's national spirit, is one of the top five most consumed spirits in the world, but most of that consumption comes within Brazilian borders. Dragos and team are bringing cachaça to U.S. retailers with an ethos of doing well by doing right. This mantra cascades across their entire stakeholder ecosystem, offering everything from school to children of the Brazilian sugarcane farmers, to wellness events for bartenders, to leading a reforestation project called the Unendangered Forest, dedicated to the preservation of native species of Brazilian trees. Novo Fogo's inspiring value proposition is matched by Drago's inspiring personal story, that began growing up in Romania. After the Iron Curtain had fallen, the destabilization of the area led Dragos, his sister, and his parents to flee the country for the United States in 1991. His parents gave up everything, including their white-collar jobs, with the hopes that their children would have a brighter future in America. Dragos' father, a self-taught engineer and tinkerer, created a soldering tool that led to the launch of a company called Cold Heat. The offering quickly found product market fit and became a $60 million a year company under Drago's leadership as a 30-something CEO. To scale the business, investors and a Fortune 500 CEO came aboard, which proved to be Cold Heat's downfall. The company went bankrupt. The Cold Heat experience, rich with lessons, was ultimately his parents' dream. And the bankruptcy provided a window for Drago's to pursue his dream in Brazil. Dragos and his wife Emily traveled to Brazilian distilleries, expecting to introduce principles in organic, sustainable agriculture, but quickly realized that they had a lot to learn and little to teach. Many of the principles were already in motion, led by the natural instincts of the farmers. That insight anchors the Novo Fogo motto, we are farmers first. Finally, Dragos talks about the lessons he's learned across all these unique experiences and summarizes with guidance for those seeking to live with more intention. He says, look within yourself to find your best parts, those things that really make you shine and build them up. That is your path to success. Great words of advice from someone with great life lessons. One quick reminder to please subscribe and rate the Ikigai Stories podcast on your favorite platform. And now please enjoy this episode of Ikigai Stories with Dragos Agzent, CEO of Novo Fogo. Dragos, hello. Thank you for being here. Hello, Sam. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Thanks um, for having me. Yeah, thanks for having me here in this uh, incredible space. The, uh, do you have a name for this? Yeah, this is called Tiger Tales. Tiger Tales? Yeah, we live on Tiger Mountain, and Tales is a shortcut for cocktails. This is <laughs> nice. a bar, nice. also my office, Yeah. so we call it Tiger Tales. It's like a, a sanctuary for spirits. 
Yeah, I didn't show you, but we have a cocktail menu here. Oh, I would expect that. So <laughs> what we're looking at is 500 bottles, roughly? Yeah, 500 bottles of spirits, um, probably 180 cachaças or so, half of those being my own, and then a variety of different things from you know, like one vodka, <laughs> a lot of gins, and a lot of agave and some brandies to uh, a large number of rums. And I have a weakness for spice rum that is not shared by very many people. And then quite a few whiskeys from all over the world too. Yeah, it's quite a, quite a space. Um, and eventually I want to talk more about the space and just what you've created right here. Sure. But uh, why don't we first just start with Novo Fogo and can you describe, uh, tell us a little bit about your company, yeah. Novo Fogo. Of course. It's my favorite topic. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Novo Fogo means new fire in Portuguese. And it's uh, it sort of came from a dream. And it's a real business now. And the business is that we make cachaça. And cachaça is Brazil's national spirit. It's made from sugar cane, only in Brazil. And it's, uh, believe it or not, it's one of the largest spirit categories in the world. Typically bouncing around from the third to the fifth and somewhere in between at all times. A couple, a couple billion liters being produced every year. Most of it consumed in Brazil. Um, but cachaça outside of Brazil is growing very fast as well. And, of course, the U.S. with its cocktail scene is a driving force. Mm -hmm. uh, Eastern Europe, uh, in particular the U.K., uh, are also there. I'm sorry, Western Europe. That's where the U.K. is. And um, we're, uh, we're trying to make something of it, and it seems like it's starting to catch on. So... Uh, we make it in our own distillery. We own a large uh, plot of land there in the Atlantic rainforest of southern Brazil, right on the Atlantic coast. We grow organic sugar cane, and we press that cane, make a wine out of it, and then distill it into cachaça. It's a distilled spirit. It comes out clear like every other spirit in the world, and then we put most of it in barrels, and we then get the things that you see over here on the shelves. Mm -hmm. So uh, we're very proud of our business because we, we feel like we're, we're pushing the envelope in terms of the sustainability um, scope of the distilled spirits world. We're 100% organic certified by the USDA. We are a zero waste operation and uh, we are uh, one of the few or maybe the first, I'm not really sure, carbon negative distilled spirits companies in the world. Mm. And that's not just the not just the distillery that's been there for a long time, but it's the distillery and the Seattle office and the New York office and the Paris office and all the freight in between our points of distribution and all the travel, all of that together uh, is carbon negative. Wow. And in part because mm. of our clean practices and also in part because we have all that land. And uh, as of about a year ago, we now have a reforestation project on the land, too. Yeah. It's kind of our new legacy. It's a pride and, and a joy. And it um, grew out of our interest to do more than talk about things, mm -hmm. the right thing. Mm -hmm. It was an interest in showing, you know, leading by example. And to describe that um, at the high level, basically in, our, in the forest around us, there are about 300 species of trees, of which about um, 30 of them are threatened. And most of them are used in barrel aging cachaça. Mm -hmm. So our industry is complicit to the deforestation problem in Brazil at some level, you know, every industry is complicit at some level. 
And we are trying to literally take those species off the threatened list. Mm. And the way we do so is that we create a project called the Unendangered Forest. And um, we have a, uh, a number of botanists work with us, including the very prestigious Dr. Sylvia Ziller from Florianopolis in Santa Catarina, who is an expert in invasive species and preservation. And uh, we find these trees in the wild, and it's very hard to find them, but we have a number of people looking for them and plotting them with GPS. Mm -hmm. And then when we find them, we go back to them whenever they're flowering and get their seeds, either from the ground, or if not, these guys climb up 60 feet in the, in the tree and, and collect uh, the seeds. And then we bring them to uh, our nursery at our partner property at Coa Park. That's a, one of the most amazing places in the universe. Mm -hmm. And we grow these little seedlings into tiny little plants that could then be moved to a forever home. And that may be our own property if we have the right environment for it, the right soil, the right sh shade, etc. Um, or it may be to a partner property. Now we have a number of partner properties, typically a lot of resorts mm. who are signing up to become stewards of, of the project. And we have aspirations that it can grow nationally and can in fact make um, an impact at a large numbers so we can in fact take some of these species off the threatened list or move them down the list from endangered to something lesser than that and those those trees what role do they play in in the cachaca creation or well, is it for the barrel uh, aging yeah process, so or? when it comes to uh cachaca i would say about 10 percent of the cachaca produce is unaged so it's clear mm -hmm. right and the rest of it about 90 percent is aged and um over the last many decades, American oak has become the prevalent type of wood for aging cachaca. Mm -hmm. We've been part of that movement as well. It's natural. American oak is delicious. It's got the right porosity. It has uh, the proper exchange between liquid and wood. And so there's a reason why it's beloved around the world in all of the distill, distill spirits categories. Uh, but um, there's, so I would say probably about 60% of total cachaca is aged in oak. Most of it American and some French. And then there's a percentage of about 30%, 30 points, uh, of cachaças that are aged in native woods. Mm. And that's just sort of a historical thing. It's mm. kind of a remnant of what it used to be. Yeah. And uh, it has to do with the fact that in centuries past, you know, cachaça has been around for hundreds of years. In centuries past, um, there was a lot of wood. There were large vats of wood being produced to store cachaça. Very gigantic vats of wood. And... Tropical trees have this intrinsic property that they, in order to fight insects and humidity, they increase their density and they produce more resin. Mm. As a result, they become very hard. They're called hardwoods because they are very hard. And Brazil has some of the hardest woods on the planet. Mm. So these woods are typically used for construction and flooring and, and, and furniture and things of that sort. Not so much for aging spirits, but possibly for storing spirits. Mm. So there's this cultural... Um, historical piece that says cachaca should be in these woods but now these woods have become endangered so they're harder to source um, the cultural tradition is going away and we don't want the trees to go away because our industry is really trying to abuse them further so mm -hmm. there's a very fine balance here of the right thing what's what's the right thing to do and for now we decided we're not we're planting trees to plant trees we're not going to plant them to cut them later and make barrels we just want to get those numbers back up yeah yeah um, so let's, let's talk about cachaca as a category. 
So if we can just start there. Cause yeah, you, did you notice how fast I got into trees? It's like did, what we I talk did. about all the time these <laughs> <Yeah>. days. <laughs> we spend hours at team meetings talking about trees. My email is tree at noofogo.com. That's, that's right. We just got an oak at noofogo.com too, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Who is oak? What's oak's role? That's, that's Philippe. He's our, uh, he's our guy in, in Paris. Yeah. And he's Brazilian, French-Brazilian. And uh, he used to work for LeBlanc, our competitor and friend as well. And he now works with us and manages our European business. And he just had the choice to pick a he didn't pick want, a name. He didn't and want Philippe. He we, well, no, we don't do that. Oh, okay. I mean, we have we have tree and raindrop and mountain and Rio and and frog and tanager, uh, you know, all all these various names, hummingbird. So Philippe had to pick something that was a symbol of some sort. And it's a little bit of a symbol of kind of the type of work you do, maybe your personality. Hmm. You know how you feel about your role in the company. So he thought he was a towering oak. That's He's cool. a tall man too. That's cool. That's cool. <laughs> um, okay, so so Kashas as a category, can you just provide yeah. some just one-on-one level education? Yeah, I think, of course you bet. Yeah. So uh, the number one thing to know is that all spirits are made generally in the same way. You find a plant that grows out of the earth. You cut that plant and you squeeze the juice out of it in some fashion trying to extract its sugar. And then you take that sugar, sugar juice or whatever it is, and you try to convert it into alcohol through the process of fermentation. So if you add yeast, which is a bacteria, to sugar, it will ferment into alcohol. And then if you're making wine or beer, you just kind of end there. You have your wine or your beer, depending on what your source product was, grapes, wheat, barley, whatever. Um, if you're making distilled spirits, you continue from that point forward. You take your wine and your beer and you, f- you distill it. So that means that you're essentially heating it up and it starts to evaporate. And it evaporates in parts because the different compounds in that wine or beer have different vaporization temperatures. First, you get the purest alcohol has the lowest vaporization temperature. It'll rise, it'll become gas, vapor, and then all the other parts, the, the more aromatic parts, the water, and eventually the denser, gunkier parts that are, that are um, heavier. So those three parts are called head, heart, and tail. And if you capture them and cool them back down, you, they, liquid, uh, uh, they become a liquid again, and you, and you capture the high alcohol parts, and now you have a distilled spirit. So that's how you get to 40, 50, 60% alcohol, anything, right? Mm -hmm. Well, we follow that same process too. Uh, And we're very lucky in that our source of sugar is sugar cane. Mm -hmm. So it's super easy to extract sugar from sugar cane. We we literally take the plant, which we grow, we cut it, we squeeze it. There comes the sugar juice. It has about 15% sugar content. So a nice level of sugar content. And then we ferment that into, we call ours wine, and then we distill that into cachaça. And this is similar, but also different from making rum. Mm-hmm. So rum is a very well-known category, smaller than cachaça, younger than cachaça, I'll tell you. Mm-hmm. But um, it, it has a few differences from making cachaça in that once you cut that plant and you squeeze it and you get the sugar juice, 99% of the time you boil that juice and you crystallize it into what you know as sugar white crystals known mm-hmm. as sugar and then you may sell that into the um, grocery industry if you wish and then the the part that remains behind is called molasses it's really a byproduct and it has um, a high content of sugar and that becomes the source product for rum most of the time there are some fresh sugar cane juice rums as well but most of the time rum is made from molasses mm. 
which is why it's a little lower cost um, and why it's so intense in its flavor uh, in terms of the, that, that caramel flavor. Yeah. And so there are differences between rum and cachaça. There are geographical and technical, but for the most part, you know, rum comes from molasses and cachaça comes from sugarcane juice, freshly mm. pressed sugarcane juice. So as a result, the cachaça will be much more terroir-driven, much rawer, more natural. Um, geography really matters in this case. There's another type of sugarcane spirit called rum agricole, rum agricole from Martinique, which is kind of sits between the two. It's closer to cachaça, in fact, because it's made from uh, fresh sugarcane juice as well. Mm. But it has its own terroir. It's a it's kind of a maritime terroir. It has a lot of uh, brininess and uh, a lot of funk to it. Mm. So, uh, you know, there are a lot of different types of sugarcane spirits. And ours is actually the largest in in size, has the most history, but uh, at the same time has the most uh, work to be done because it's lesser known than the others. Yeah. So the, um, okay, so thank you. That's a good, that's a good background on cachaça. So the, can you talk about just the, the process um, that's unique to Novo Fogo? Oh yeah, sure. Uh, in, in creating your cachaça? Yeah, you bet. So uh, also when thinking about spirits, you, you can divide them into two types of spirits industrial and craft spirits so that's pretty kind of what you're thinking it is just like with beer macro and micro mm. um, the industrial spirits will be made in large quantities using large equipment and perhaps lower quality control a craft spirit is done as much as possible using human hands and our process does reflect that our idea is that our distillery is and our sugarcane plantation are on the coast of the Atlantic rainforest, literally on the mountain, in the jungle, overlooking the uh, the ocean. So as a result, what we have is this environment where the air is so clean, you can smell everything that is there. Mm. You can smell the sea salt from the ocean below. You can smell the lime blossoms and the passion fruit and the grass. And, mm. um, wow. and you know, it's very, the sugar cane itself picks up all those flavors. It does pick up serious terroir. So it's sweet and it's salty. It's savory and it's tropical. It's very strange sugarcane. But it is the foundation of, of our product. So as a result, because we've been gifted that, that foundation, we're saying we're going to keep it. We're going to process this thing minimally. So by the time that it gets into the bottle, you can, ha- you can, you can see the connection to the place. Mm-hmm. You can smell it and you can taste it. Yeah. So if you open a bottle of our silver cachaça, it smells like bananas because we have a lot of bananas around us. Hmm. Large quantity of banana plantations yeah. around us. So um, the process is very simple. It's really a, a traditional process that is enforced by modern equipment so that we nail it. You know, We always know exactly the right temperature, but it, it is the most basic process that has been used to make a shasta for hundreds of years. Yeah. So uh, we cut the cane by hand. That's where it starts. Yeah. Not using machines, not using any kind of large equipment with machetes, literally. Uh, and then we, because the distillery is in the middle of the field, we can press the cane very quickly to extract the sugar juice. And this is important because if you leave the cane sitting in the sun, or if you're harvesting it a thousand kilometers away and put it in a truck and drive it for 10 hours, 20 hours, uh, it will spoil. Yeah. It will just become acidic naturally, which will create a bad foundation for the spirit itself. So we press it right away uh, within hours. If, if we harvest in the morning, we press in the afternoon. Harvest in the afternoon, we press it by morning. Mm. And we extract that juice. 
and then the juice is decanted. We have this distillery that is set in the slope of the mountain so we can move the liquid from room to room using gravity instead of motorized pumps because motorized pumps use electricity, which costs money, makes, make, make noise, which bothers the animals and the birds in our backyard. We have plenty of those. And, um, and also uh, pumps may bring impurities from the air into the spirit and then you're forced to do more processing that we don't want to do because that would also extract flavor. So using gravity, we press the cane and we move it down the slope of the, of the mountain to the next room where we decan it and then we start fermenting it with yeast that is really cultivated from our own sugarcane. It's like mm -hmm. semi-wild yeast. We don't want to introduce another flavor into the, the process. Definitely not a chemical from a plant in Atlanta. You know, you want something as natural as you can be. So we, we cultivate that. And uh, the fermentation process takes about 18 hours, never more than 24. If it takes more than 24, it's too long. Hmm. We consider it spoiled. It gets re we put, put back in the earth. Um, but after 18 hours or so, we should have a wine that is now 8% alcohol or so and 0% sugar. It needs to have 0% sugar. That means it has no impurities left. Impurities are kind of a big deal in spirits, and we insist on no impurities. So then that wine is put in a single still that has three parts. A preheater that takes the temperature of the wine halfway up to where it needs to be. And then the still itself where we continue to heat it. And these, these two bowls they utilize heat get their heat from um, a furnace that is uh, run using the dried sugarcane plants mm. so we cut the plants we squeeze them the juices out we put them over there in a pile and then we toss them in the oven and they become fuel and now we have steam heat hot water and steam that will heat these things up and uh we don't have to have another source of energy that way wow and, and then isn't some of the uh, yeast extracted from the from, sugar cane, from sugar cane too. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Everything is just one thing, mm -hmm. one place, one thing, no waste. And uh, and after it, it vaporizes, we we chill it back down and we um, we separate the head and the heart and the tail. But what's interesting too is that when that vapor rises, it's hot, and our purpose is to try to recondense it by cooling it back down that's how you distill right mm -hmm. well you know over here you have a thing that needs heat and over here you have a thing that gives heat so we say let's make a heat interchange mechanism mm -hmm. and it's the simplest thing you've ever seen it's one pipe inside the preheater bowl the wraps around the inner walls of this preheater bowl and the vapor runs through there losing some of its heat at that time in the place where it's needed and we We've calculated that we save about 20% energy that way. Hmm. We did one pipe one time inside a bowl, and that's it. Wow. Right? Very cheap. Yeah. You can find a lot of creative ideas if you just think about it, like gravity moving your spirit. Right, right. <laughs> right. Perfect example of sustainability. Right. right. Uh, so then the, the head and the tail are too rough for us. We don't use those for, uh, for drinking. We, we use those as fuel for the fire, as cleaning agent, because mm. some of our rooms are like labs, like clean rooms. And or, that's, it, would that be akin to like moonshine? That's that yeah, high, high, yeah, high. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the, the, the head will be high proof. It's probably in the 60% range. And honestly, it just gives me a headache just smelling it. Yeah. The tails will just be gunky, low proof, 32, 35%. Mm. Um, the, the heart is where it's at. And mm -hmm. that's really every distiller should be only taking the hearts. Yep. But in Brazil, there are a lot of bad habits to take the whole thing and blend together and put in a bottle or, or maybe redistill it together mm -hmm. 
um, that's not good yeah. for anybody really. Yeah. But there are things we can do with the head and the tail, and we, we use them for that. Mm -hmm. Fuel for the tractor, fuel for the cars. Yeah. Vehicles in Brazil are hybrids. Are um, They use either gasoline or alcohol. You can literally mix them in the tank as well. You can switch from one to the other. So head and heart, head and tail of cachaça are not the best fuel. They yeah. don't have any high proof, yeah. but they are fuels. Yeah. And yeah. we're looking actually to get a smaller still just to redistill these things to increase the proof so they're better fuel for the for the vehicles oh, there. Interesting. We'll do that. Interesting. Uh, so then uh, the liquid goes in two different kinds of things, either a stainless steel tank. We have a few of those that are very large, like 35,000 liters. And after sitting in that tank for about a year, we have our silver cachaça, which is now smooth enough to drink, very pleasant, has a lot of aromas, uh, but um, it's not hard in any way. It's not hot in any way, which mm -hmm. is very difficult for cachaça for mm -hmm. unaged cachaça not to be hot but it's not hot because it starts our great sugarcane a really clean process and then sitting for a whole year that's a long time to rest anything yeah. you know so it just becomes smoother more homogenized it's like uh taking a steak off the grill you, mm -hmm. you don't cut it right away you let the juices spread through the steak before right. you start enjoying it yeah similar similar concept here or we put it in barrels and most of our barrels are american oak we have literally a handful of barrels made from native woods that we were able to source sustainably or by repurposing abandoned houses and things of that sort and we're only making those just to have the story to tell in conjunction with our reforestation project but most of it is american oak from kentucky mm -hmm. a lot of four roses and heaven hill barrels yeah and a 200 liters and we have them in a few different rooms and they sit in those barrels for a minimum of a year but sometimes we've had some 10 year old cachaça mm. And we sell them as barrel-aged expressions of many kinds. Yeah. So that process, starting with the machete all the way mm -hmm. until the bottle goes up on the shelf. Yes, sir. So you said there were two categories. There's like the, the industrial, industrial and yeah. then the craft. Yeah. So machete, um, the, the tube... Um, there's yeah. just the small still, points. the fermentation down to zero percent using gravity, uh, sugar. Yeah, using gravity. The the fact that you only use the heart, small barrels, long time. Those are the things that determine a craft spirit. So how much of that is unique to Novo Fogo, and how much of that is unique to the craft cachaça? Well, I think there are um, components of what we do that are used by every craft spirit in any category, really. Yeah. Uh, there are many practices that are shared. It's like I said earlier, it's somewhat of the same process for everybody. But um, I think in, for Brazil, there is a lot of, there is a lack of discipline in the mm -hmm. way that these processes are followed, especially for small producers. And uh, for example, when it comes to barrels, you know, there's no particular plan on how you're going to source barrels and how many times you're going to reuse them and what you'll get the first time versus the third time mm -hmm. they, there's a lot of wing in it really and so yeah. we're, we've normalized that process to where every single time we have the consistency of the last time and um, and it's also a, a way you know in, in a way you look at every step of the process and you say I'm only going to keep the best part as the creme de la creme concept yeah. the heart you know the the uh, the fermentation that goes to no impurities whatsoever, you know, the yeast, the way the yeast is made, all those things are basically saying, I'm only going forward with my best foot forward or I'm not going. Right. 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 And that is more of a mentality than a process. Yeah. Right. The process is adapted to the mentality. 
Yeah. Is craft, the, the definition of craft, is it similar to beer where craft is based on the number of barrels produced oh, or yeah, volume? No. Or is it, a, is it a... That's always a, a very debatable topic. Um, craft spirits have not truly been defined. I think there is uh, some kind of definition of, of volume, but it's not widely embraced. Mm. Uh, the state of Washington does have a definition of what a craft distillery is, and it does have to, it actually has to do with the, where the ingredients are sourced from. Uh, at least, okay. I think at least 50% or so have to be sourced from Washington state. So okay. there's no single universal uh, definition that everybody's embracing. Yeah, yeah. Um, products. Products. So how many different iterations of Novo Fogo? are there on the shelves yeah. today? Well, we have uh, a few different layers of things. We have our core spirits, what we call the silver, the chameleon, and the barrel-aged. And the best way to understand those is in a language that you speak, and that is tequila. Mm -hmm. So in the tequila world, you have Blanco, Reposado, and Añejo. Mm -hmm. Our three are very similar. Silver, chameleon, and barrel-aged. One year in steel, one year in oak, two years in oak, or, or more, hmm. right? The silver is clear. It's got the sugarcane funk, and the terroir is still super present, but it's smooth and it's drinkable, and it will shine in, uh, uh, you know, summer drinks, in, in sours, in the Caipirinha, Brazil's national cocktail, and uh, but it'll also have a savory component to it that will mix with a lot of interesting different uh, concoctions. Hmm. Then at the opposite end, we have the barrel-aged cachaça that's aged for two years in, in oak. And that's really kind of the legacy of the south of Brazil and the legacy of our distillery is American oak for a couple of years or more, lots of vanilla and toffee notes, delightful, but you know it's not whiskey. It's not bourbon in any way. Mm -hmm. Although we use bourbon barrels, we sanded those things and retoasted them. It's new barrels. So it's like the banana in, in the unaged spirit now has sat in the oven of a an oak barrel in the rainforest heat and it's become banana bread you know it tastes like sp spices yeah like winter spices like cinnamon bark and chocolate and things of that sort instead of sweet red pepper it's become black pepper and then in between we have the one that looks both ways which is why it's called chameleon because it has um some of the oak notes the vanilla and toffee so you can in fact put it in a in a, what we call a brown bitter and stir drink, you know, you serve it up in a classic cocktail like the old fashioned or the Manhattan or the Sazerac or whatever. But it still hasn't, its funk hasn't been subdued enough because it only sat for a year. So you can get plenty of that funk in, mm -hmm. in a drink. And we kept that one at a higher proof, 43%. And that extra proof really helps make the spirit shine in the glass. So the chameleon is actually the most versatile of the three, hmm. like the reposado is in the tequila line. Yeah. It's uh, used by bartenders in a lot of different kinds of drinks as well. Yeah. And then, so those are the core spirits. And then we have our two woods series where uh, we are trying to highlight some of these native woods and the history and the cultural um, affiliation that Cachaca has to, to trees. But because of the issues that I described earlier, we'll literally have one or two or three barrels of some of these things. Amburana, Brazilian teak, Araribá, that's Brazilian zebra wood, or Castanera, which is Brazil nut wood. And because we have such few of these barrels, and because they are hardwood, so hard to extract flavor from, we basically decided to first age them in oak, which is normal for us anyway, and then finish them in some of these woods. Mm in a way that is um, 
short, <laughs> as short as possible. Yeah. And even, even with a short time, we still have very limited um, uh, bottles of this, like literally like a few hundred cases a year mm-hmm. of each one of these. And uh, the best story is that of our um, spirit called Tanager, which is aged in oak for a year, like chameleon. But then it's finished in zebra wood barrels for two or three months. And the reason why we can get so much flavor out of the zebra wood in two or three months is because um, I mentioned earlier, there was a house. It was an abandoned house mm. on one of our properties down there. It, w- it was made from zebra wood. Mm. We asked the cooper if he could make some barrels from it, and he said he could make two. They were big barrels for us, 300 liters each instead of 200 liters each. And he made these two barrels. And then we said, we have two barrels. So we'll probably put liquid in, in them. and It'll take 10 years to get any flavor from that hardwood. So what are we going to do? And the, the solution was to leave the wood untoasted. So we basically sanded the wood to remove, mm. you know, whatever yeah. was the surface <laughs> yeah. of the house before, yeah. expose the fresh wood, and then leave it like that, which was a little insane. I have never seen anybody do that kind of thing. When you toast the wood, you kind of lock in the flavors, you lock in the resin, all those things, and you can have a more um, a cleaner tr- transfer of, of color and flavor between the spirit and the, and the wood. Not this time. So while things happened, uh, the spirit extracted a lot of color, a lot of flavor, and a lot of resin, mm. which also made it super cloudy, very, yeah. very cloudy. And when you add water to that cloudiness, it becomes even more cloudy. So cocktails made with the original tanager look like orange juice. That's quite something. Very funky, though. And then we learned, and we continued to wing it a little bit, and learned that if you um, put it in the barrel at lower proof, it'll extract less resin if you put in the bottle at a higher proof then you'll need less less water so we did all that and now it's pretty clean but it's still super red after mm. just a few months in the in the zebra wood interesting and then we have a single barrel program where we basically say um come and taste a bunch of things see what you like you like the light toast the medium toast the heavy toast once you decide what toast level you like or no toast mm-hmm. um you pick a barrel and then we put in 240 bottles or less mm. if you're for you and then it has your name on it and your logo is engraved on the cork and maybe uh, you're a bar or retailer but we've seen we work with both types and it's pretty cool to see a Novo Fogo single barrel for Rumba in Seattle on their menu as, yeah. as a spirit that is used in cocktails that's I think that's kind of next level stuff nobody's yeah. done that with Cachaca before yeah that's cool and then to try to make Cachaca more accessible we started to invent some easy um, easy drinking products where we basically package things as a kit. We made a caipirinha kit with a bottle of silver cachaça and a muddler. Most people don't know what a muddler is, so we put one in there. We design one, custom design one, and put it in there. And, um, and a couple of jars so that they would have shakers and drinking vessels as well with recipe card tear away from it and a whole video campaign on how to make the caipirinha mm-hmm. with a lot of information on how to choose limes and how to cut limes and what kind of sugar what kind of ice and when to shake or to stir, etc. And um, then some in- individual cocktail kits. When there are tiny little cachaça old-fashioned, essentially, with a mini bottle of each one of our core spirits and then um, a sweetener to match, like white sugar or agave syrup or honey, mm-hmm. and then some bitters to match that, lime bitters, grapefruit bitters, chocolate bitters. So you have an amazing little cachaça old-fashioned that you can make in 20 seconds. Yeah. And those are all single serve, right? Yeah, That's those a, single serve, yeah. and we put those. Um, there, some of them are retail, but we did. We had a program um, with a um, cruise ship company in which we put them in the staterooms, and that was awesome. Hmm. 
Yeah. People like to drink on cruise ships, and we gave them things that they could drink in their room. Yeah. So that was nice. And then uh, most recently, we created a canned cocktail uh, that is a take on the Caipirinha, Brazil's national cocktail that we carbonated. And we actually now have three, a lime flavor, uh, passion fruit flavor, and a mango flavor. And they're super awesome. And they are kind of our pride and joy right now. They're helping us yeah. open doors to mass retail and get our cachaça into retail stores like Target and Whole Foods, they would have never sold cachaça otherwise. Yeah. Because they are accessible by a normal person who maybe has never heard of cachaça and caipirinha before. But these things look very cute. Yeah. And they have the right features. They they taste amazingly. Like this lime one rated 96 points from Beverage Tasting Institute. Yeah. And they're low carb, 10 grams, so keto friendly. And they are uh, low calorie at around 120 calories. But they're also... Just right in terms of alcohol, 8.5% alcohol. You can taste the cachaça. You can taste the tropical flavor. It's super well-balanced. It's a real cocktail. And you can have a real cocktail on uh, on a low-carb diet like like keto. So yeah. it just kind of hits all of the boxes uh, at a time when these boxes are necessary. I feel like we are... Uh, we're 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 kind of changing the way that these esoteric imported spirits are consumed in this country and and I'm glad they were able to do it. Yeah, I mean, just looking at this box or looking at a box. This is a four pack, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, this isn't. Let's open it. A like the hard seltzer kind of move toward the hard right. seltzer. This isn't a hard seltzer, but it it kind of falls in that trend. Doesn't well, it? it doesn't. No, we actually were very careful to make sure that we're not compared to hard seltzers. Um, hard seltzers are low proof, low calorie, and low carbs, but they also are low in flavor. Mm. It's just basically as neutral as it's not actually a spirit. It's a it's really a malt beverage, um, mm. and the the way that they keep the calories and the carbs low is that they add nothing. It's just very close to nothing in there. Yeah, we want the full flavor. We're making cocktails. the The trend we're following is that of cocktails, which have been around for a long time, will continue to be around for a long time. Mm-hmm. Caipirinha is a real thing. That is a, a a drink that is the pride and joy of Brazil. It's a sp- it's a spiritual and cultural ambassador of Brazil. It needs to be respected. It has an identity and an origin. We can't just kill it and yeah. call it a caipirinha. So we're trying very hard to respect that. Yeah. Uh, we carbonated it though to make it more fun. Yeah. You know, and it's it's delicious. And you should pop one of these pretty soon. I have them in the fridge, by the way. Okay. Yeah. I will. I will. Um, so. We are farmers first. Let's <laughs> yes, go. Let's are. go to that line. You too. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> I think I would fail, fail miserably as a farmer, yeah. as uh, some of my friends know. Uh, some of my farmer friends know very well. Um, can you talk about that line? Just sure. what it means and how it embodies the ethos of. Yeah, that's program? great. I'm glad you brought that up. We are very fortunate to have this privilege of controlling the process from the plant in the ground to the product on the retail shelf or the, in the cocktail on the, on the bar top. Um, it, it, it was something that we sought. You know, we, when we partnered with the folks who built the distillery, at the beginning we were two companies and then we merged the two companies and we became one. We were one family, but now we had a formal reason to call ourselves a family as well. And it helped the business altogether. It, it sped up product development. It aligned our interests. But, uh, and it also created a lot of credibility for us in the marketplace. 
But the other thing that it did that was super important was that it really legitimized our brand story that was about the place and the people who create our product. Mm-hmm. You know, we were doing yeah. that, although it wasn't our company. Now it's our company. And it gives us an immense amount of transparency when it comes to what's happening with our workers in the, in the sugarcane field. Um, who are they? Do they live a good life? What do we do about preserving the environment around us? Well, we are very proud of all the things that we do in those, in those disciplines, and we make them an even more important part of the brand story, right? So it starts with the fact that we are farmers. We grow sugarcane. Mm-hmm. Without the sugarcane, we wouldn't have cachaça. And the things that our team in the field that, cuts and that, that, that cultivates and harvests that sugarcane, the things that they learn from the sugarcane and the ground that the sugarcane grows out of, they dictate everything else. That's the foundation of our company. We learn from them. Mm-hmm. You know, they have the hardest jobs. They depend on the weather. They depend on nature. They depend on the birds. The reason why, one of the reasons why we're not organic, we are organic, sorry, is because we have birds to eat the insects that otherwise would destroy our, mm. our plants. Yeah. Uh, birds are, are insecticides. Hmm. So we got to keep those birds around yeah right yeah and uh to keep the birds around we have to take care of the trees and the fruit trees in particular because the birds come to eat fruit trees so these folks who work out there in the field they see all this and i remember when emily and i went to brazil and we had this idea that we're going to teach these new brazilian partners how to do organic mm-hmm. and sustainable agriculture and they showed us everything they were doing just instinctually they were doing it because it was there available to them and it was part of life we realized we had a lot to learn and nothing to teach. You know? yeah. <laughs> it was just life. Yeah. Showing, showing uh, how to do business. Yeah. So um, we take those stories from the farmland and we put them in our packaging everywhere, honestly. You know, our floor display shows a picture of Valdemar. He's our sugarcane field supervisor. Mm-hmm. Cutting cane uh, in the field, organic sugarcane that goes in the making of the Spartan Caipirinha can cocktail. And on the other side, we have a picture of our reforestation project here on the inside flap of the Caipirinha oh, yeah. box. Yeah. There's a little bit of a story about our unindigenous forest project. And you yeah. can do a QR scan and it takes you to a website that tells you everything about what we think about trees in Brazil and our project and how you can participate in it as well. Yeah. So it gives us a lot of material and a brand is, is uh, genuine when it talks about itself in true colors it's easier you don't get lost when you talk about yourself Mm -hmm. right so not only do we have the right material but we enjoy sharing it with others so it works for everyone really and we're hoping that you know we can lead through example and perhaps others will will uh, realize that doing the right thing can actually lead to positive economic results too yeah, I mean, it's it, it's clearly helping the environment. It also makes a lot of sense in terms of the bottom line, right? When you're not using machines, when you're... Yes, um, it helps keep costs down for sure. Right. There are other types of costs. I mean, um, you know, we have to take really good care of the team. They have very hard jobs and we do that. They, um, you know, they're not allowed to work outside between 12 and 3 in the summer months because it's too hot mm. and too humid and they come into the building which is air conditioned they do other things they bottle things they put their initials on the bottles Oh wow. they bottle the little minis they do a lot of different kinds of things um, when they are outside they have to take breaks every 2-3 hours they're supposed to come inside at least once a day um, they get free food 
allowances for children, uh, English classes. We have mm. an English teacher who, who gives them classes for free. Yeah. Three folks live on the property. We have a little duplex there. The commute is really awesome. Yeah. Um, they have medical insurance, which is highly unusual in Brazil, where there's free health care, but it's not very good. So if you want good health care, you have to buy insurance. Mm. We do that for them. And as a result, uh, they're all happy and healthy, you yeah. know, and they enjoy working there. And I'll tell you the story of Oseas. Oseas Cordero was the first person to be hired in the field by Toes, the founder of the distillery, in 2004, I believe. And Oseas was with us, and he was the field team supervisor for many years, for until August of last year, so 14 years or so. We call him Captain Oseas because he can do anything. He's an engineer and farmer and everything in between. And then in August of last year, he, he left the company because he wanted to become an entrepreneur himself. He had gained enough knowledge and courage, and he wanted to become a farmer, and he had a plot of land, and he wanted to grow certain things there and then sell them. And we couldn't get in the way of his dream, although we missed him sorely. We obviously wished him good luck and hoped that he'd come back, and he did. Mm. <laughs> he came back this year, probably seven, eight months later. He realized that he had a good job, and he missed, he missed that job. Yeah. So he came back, and that's really a source of pride for us because it means they were doing good things for uh, the team and the community. They, mm -hmm. they, you know, they tell their neighbors about this company they work for, would yeah. pride themselves. And, uh, you know, these stories are more and more appreciated by the consuming market these days, too. Right. So we were doing these things before they were popular. We were a sustainable company, an organic company, before anybody cared, before it became a marketing bullet point. Mm -hmm. Now we're starting to see the, um, the benefits, the, the kind of economic benefits of doing that as well. But we're always trying to be on the, on the forefront, push the envelope a little bit more and a little bit more. We have some, some new things we're cooking up actually on the sustainability front. Yeah. Yeah. How many people are working for Novo Fogo in Mojetes? In Brazil. So uh, right now, uh, we just finished harvest for this year. Um, and we, I think we have probably about nine people in the field. And then we have four young women in the building I have to tell you about. And they are our distillers, actually. Mm -hmm. They are the ones who distill our cachaça. Mm -hmm. Giselle, uh, Larissa, Bruna, and Mayara. Mm -hmm. And Bruna is our master distillers um, student from the university where he taught cachaça production for a couple of decades. She came to work for us, and she's our production manager now. And she's still in her 20s. All these young ladies are in their 20s, and, and uh, they are the ones who in and out make our cachaça. And so... They pretty much do everything in the building, production-wise. And then we have um, about uh, three folks in the building doing administration mm -hmm. as well. So add them up, I don't know, 16 or something like that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so you had referenced this a little bit when you and Emily, your wife Emily, yeah. went to um, Brazil yeah. with this idea, this notion that you were going to um, teach uh, and instead of <laughs> yeah. teaching, you learned. Can can you yeah. expand on that? Yeah, we had the the original vision was um, that we would find um, a story in Brazil of doing well by doing right, and and help those folks become successful economically, so they could become role models in their communities. And we thought we'd do so through the vehicle of cachaça. Um, and this kind of goes back to my. My background, my this is my second venture, and my first one we took a tiny little 
category, soldering tools, and we grew it five times. Nobody knew what soldering tools were, but we found the right product with the right marketing story and the right platform for delivering that marketing story, and we were able to increase the market size five times. And Cachaça was kind of a similar thing where we thought, well, nobody knows about it in, in the U.S., but it's big in Brazil. I discovered that because we were making soldering tools in Brazil, and I mm. ended up there. Mm. And um, I uh, realized that, you know, in, in my opinion, I think innovation is when you take something out of a context in which it has very little value for whatever reason, competition or whatever, and you move it into a new context where you, perhaps you modify a little bit, package it differently, and now it has a lot of value. Right. We did that with soldering tools. I thought we could do this with with cachaça as well by bringing it from Brazil, where there is a lot of competition mm-hmm. and you really can't get national distribution for anything like that into a world that appreciated a well-told craft story of this little community in the jungle of, yeah. of Brazil. Yeah. And so the original specs for creating this brand were these three. We wanted something that was organic because we knew that at least 80% of um, American consumers pick the organic version of a product if it doesn't cost more than 15% more than the inorganic version. Hmm. Then the second thing was that we wanted a story of sustainability uh, so that we can get people riled up around that idea and what better way do you have to grow a consumer product uh, brand if not by making your consumers into salespeople, right? Mm -hmm. And the third thing that um, we wanted was to tell the story of the simple life. And that was kind of something that had fall out, fallen in our minds out of the global recession that sort of took people a little more towards their core mm-hmm. of less material endeavors and more emotional and personal engagement. And we thought we'd find answer to all those requirements in Brazil. And so we spent many months trying to find that partner through just research sending a questionnaire to dozens of distilleries and then eventually going driving around all of Brazil for over the course of several weeks to meet with our favorite seven distilleries. And when we arrived in Mojetes, we knew right away we had found our kinder spirits. The place was perfect. The people were perfect. The cachaça was perfect. The story was there. And it was very easy to, to um, create a partnership from that point forward. Yeah. Um, okay. So before before we we shift gears and talk about Dragos's journey to to Novo okay. Fogo, um, one last part I'd like you to to talk about is the wellness. So the wellness oh, yeah, events sure. that you're doing. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe the catalyst behind. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. Why doing wellness events for bartenders, and yeah. then what are the wellness events that you do for the bartenders? Sure. Yeah. When we launched this company, I made a lot of friends among bartenders. It's hard not to do that when you're selling to them. You have to make friends first with your customers, right? And it was very easy to kind of get caught up in the world of young bartenders, which is uh, very interestingly a world of a world of excess. You know, very bad schedules, working schedules, a lot of sleeping during the day, which is not as healthy, eating uh, in on a poor schedule perhaps a lot of alcohol consumption, you know, and um, never any exercise, just a lot of bad habits that are just kind of, they just sort of happen and nobody seeks them, but they happen. And I saw people kind of burned out very quickly too. And it was sad to see that 
um, you know, these folks are not doing as well for themselves as they could be doing. And also it's sad for us that we were losing clients every couple of years. Mm-hmm. We'd have to invest in new relationships all the time because I've, I've, I had many bartender friends who basically said, I need to leave the industry or else I will die. Yeah. Right. So they'd have to find a job in a bank or something. Yeah. And so um, it became obvious that we could try to focus on that and uh, perhaps put whatever mo- little money we had for marketing into wellness events that would help these folks find the personal sustainability balance and help themselves stay in the industry for a longer period of time. And therefore possibly also become more loyal to us because we had helped facilitate that path for mm-hmm. themselves. And, um, and at the same time that we started to do this, Sam, my wife Emily was diagnosed with two simultaneous breast cancers and she was a very healthy person and it was... Um, it was a shock to see that somebody like her was at risk of a major disease. Well, what about these other guys who are like mm. ticking, walking, ticking time bombs, yeah. you know? So there was a sense of urgency even that was introduced to the equation. So we started to do wellness events when we were a team of two people or one and a quarter mm-hmm. while she was getting her treatment. Mm-hmm. And uh, we first... Uh, sponsored a soccer league in for Seattle bartenders Mm -hmm. and then a run through the streets of Portland during Portland cocktail week and then a soccer game between Seattle bartenders and Portland bartenders at Portland cocktail week and then we started doing a tournament with bartenders from all over the country usually eight teams Mm -hmm. Uh, and then we started to do a variety of different things all over the country at at um, industry events like tales of the cocktail where we with the official workout partner and we do runs through the French Quarter with police escort and all these things to what we call sweat sessions, which were much smaller individual sessions with a handful of bartenders in whatever city in the country doing something that they liked. And we'd go into a, a new market and, we, and they, they would say, tell us about your cachaça. And I'm like, no, I want to tell you about wellness. <laughs> <laughs> what do you guys like to do? And they're like, drink. <laughs> like, okay, besides that, let's leave that aside for a second. So we'd find some that would actually get them excited and get them off their bar stools on their days off. And we've done yoga and indoor, you know, spinning and indoor climbing and, and, and foraging and snowshoeing and softball, a lot of different kinds of things. Yeah. And that's pretty cool. Um, and the coolest part about it is that soon enough, a lot of people started to see that was a good thing. Mm-hmm. And talking about becoming role models, I think we succeeded in that because a lot of brands started to lead those types of events. They started to become a normal fixture in cocktail weeks and industry events. Uh, some of the older um, uh, bartenders started to lead as well in those efforts over the younger bartenders who were maybe more predisposed to partying. And it became a norm now for the industry. There's a lot more balance in the industry and a lot of people are calling on each other to help. There's still a lot of tragedies, but I think that the awareness is much higher and uh, we feel like we've done our job. Now we have a lot of help from from the entire industry. So now we switched over to focusing on environmental sustainability yeah. and preservation. Man, We're hoping to make it. that into a thing love it. in the industry. Love it. Uh, okay, so shift gears. Um, All right. So let's talk about, um, thank you. Let's talk about uh, your journey pre Novo Fogo. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you start at the beginning? 
The beginning. The beginning. The I was born part. The I was born part. Well, I was born in Eastern Europe in a country named Romania during the communist era in the 70s and uh, grew up in a fairly um, adverse environment uh, with a lot of oppression that included lack of food and lack of electricity and heat and natural gas and hot water and inability to speak freely and all these various things in the capital city of Romania. Uh, so we're supposed to have a lot of things, but we didn't. And uh, that led to, uh, I'd say, a lot of resilience, <laughs> but also a desire to do better. Mm. So in uh, 1989, as the Iron Curtain was falling, there was a revolution in Romania that brought down the uh, dictator. And uh, it, he was replaced with a new regime, turned out to be partly a new regime. It was kind of a, what was eventually called a neo-communist regime. And, you know, regime changes are, cha are difficult. They don't happen overnight. There's a lot of chaos that ensues and more problems and bigger problems sometimes. They take a couple of decades to mm -hmm. sort of find their way and then solidify. So a couple of years into that, in 1991, my parents realized it would take a long time before Romania would become a really great place to live again. And we had relatives in the United States. So we found a way to move to the U.S. and it was very difficult. We came on visitors' visas which were surprisingly approved by the U.S. Embassy. We didn't expect they would be, but they were. We came to L.A., and the next day we applied for political asylum, which was then promptly declined. Because at this point, Romania was supposed to be a democratic country. There was no reason to offer right. a political asylum to anybody from that country. Definitely not a desire on the point of the INS to offer, um, to create any kind of precedent that this would be acceptable in the future. So... For many years, we sort of kind of sat in limbo in deportation proceedings. My parents, my sister and I tried to find a way to live life and create some kind of economic value from it. Uh, it was very difficult because we moved to the U.S. with literally one handbag in each of our hands. My parents left behind some white-collar careers and that amounted to nothing in the United States. They just didn't translate. Mm. So everybody started from scratch. So... Um, we didn't last in L.A. very long. We moved to Seattle. But uh, here in Seattle, we, there, there were some opportunities that um, were developing. I was working in a bank, going to college at the University of Washington, studying chemistry to become a doctor, actually. I was a pre-med. And, uh, and my sister was an engineer. And my parents were trying to do various little things. But my father was starting to spend a lot of time in the garage tinkering with things. And he's kind of a self-taught engineer. So he'd come up with all these crazy little gadgets every week. And he'd say things like, wouldn't this be great at Radio Shack? <laughs> it was funny because we went to Radio Shack a lot in those days. But I had no idea how to sell a prototype of anything to Radio Shack. But one day I decided I would try. And I was lucky. I, um, I actually graduated from college with a degree in English creative writing. Because it came a little faster for me. Uh, and... Um, I took a job managing the investments of a family here in Seattle, and I tried to create a company on how to sell soldering tools. It turned out my dad had created this thing that heats and cools instantly using f batteries. You only require three hands to operate it, but you know, that was a prototype. Um, and I tried to figure out how to do that. And it was late 90s when, during the internet era, 
investments were flying around Seattle like anything. You could get a million dollar investment in the men's bathroom by giving a 20 second pitch. And so I participated in on the investment side uh, and I got to learn about the startup world. So I learned enough to where I eventually did start our own company. And uh, it was called Cold Heat, still is actually. And um, eventually we made a soldering tool that heats and cools instantly and operate on four AA batteries. And then that just kind of snowballed into a big success. Um, we partnered with a company in New York that helped us understand the virtue of infomercials mm. uh, and how a tool as esoteric as our cordless soldering tool would actually benefit from being shown on TV with its amazing properties of heating and cooling. And um, we built a supply chain that required four continents and we sold six million of these little gadgets in three years. It was quite a quite a thing. We quintupled the market, um, and I learned a lot about brand building, about working in different cultures, about making sales to national retailers, and um, and then uh, and then I lost it all. <laughs> Actually, we had we had an investor who came um, came on board and told us that our company had the potential to become a two billion dollar company because. We were developing a uh, platform technology, actually, of cordless heating that could be employed in a lot of different applications. And we mm. had started to develop those applications in a lot of different consumer product categories. And we were making products for the craft world and the outdoor sports world and for the pet world. And we did have a lot of potential, but we needed a Fortune 500 CEO to get us there. I was a little too young to continue to lead the company, although we were highly profitable grown to 60 million dollars a year in like three years and mm. we're doing fine but anyway we did that and uh hired the fortune 500 ceo and ultimately what happened that the investor and the ceo kind of took it you know didn't manage it properly it was no longer a it was no longer a, a, a an ambitious startup it was something else and control was lost and it went bankrupt while i was on the road selling sorting tools to mm -hmm. canadian tire or something like that <laughs> Uh, and so, uh, interestingly, uh, that was around the time of the global recession as well. And so it was a very sad fall from a very high high. And I consider myself very wealthy in knowledge and very poor in money. And uh, I decided to start thinking about another business. But we couldn't really let this go. So we actually continued. We, we, we bought the assets out of bankruptcy. And the company is alive today and selling product and there could be a happy ending there at some point. But that was really something that I was doing for my parents. That was more their dream than mine. Mm -hmm. My dream was found in Brazil. And slowly but surely after that point forward, and we started to um, put some meat on the bones on the Novo Fogo idea. So why, why Brazil? Mm. And why Cachaça? Yeah, no, for that's, e that's easy. Up in Romania. Yeah. That's actually easy. So when I was eight years old, uh, in the early 80s, I read a book about Pelé called The Black Pearl. And I loved this book. Um, and I fell in love with the Brazilian soccer history. So I started to read every book I could find about World Cup history and Brazil history. And, and I made this mental note that someday I'll go to this far, far away land that was probably on another planet called Brazil. Mm -hmm and I would see what it is, uh, and I'll try to discover that soccer culture and understand where it comes from. And 
I grew up playing soccer in the streets too. You know, the, I would say the best soccer um, mentalities come from places where it's played in the streets. Mm. And so uh, then I forgot about that. And then we moved to the U.S., and as we were growing cold heat, we were growing really fast. We were making parts one month, 20,000 parts a month, and the next month, 40, and the next month, 60. And six months later, we were trying to come up with 400,000 parts a month. And that was very hard to scale up so fast. But the partner who was helping us with our kind of our um, key part, the soldering tip, had a division in Porto Alegre in the south mm-hmm. of Brazil and started to switch some of the production there. So eventually we had three factories in Porto Alegre that were producing for us. And I went to Brazil in 2005, in June, to meet these people. And it was very interesting because I was the CEO and I was uh, 32, I guess. Mm-hmm. And they did not expect that. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> Brazil was not doing well at the time. More, uh, unemployment rate was really high. The people who had jobs were very thankful to have those jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were expecting to, that it would get worse before it got better. And it did happen that way. So... It was a very meaningful two days. It took me a day to get there. I was there for two days. But during those two days, I fell in love with Brazilians in Brazil. And also with churrasco, Brazilian steak, and with cachaça, and caipirinhas. <laughs> and I would had this mental note. In 48 hours. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I had so much of all of that. <laughs> it was amazing. We ate meat at every meal, and we drank caipirinhas at every meal. And I remember they picked me up at the airport, and they took me to the original Fogo de Chão restaurant, mm-hmm. which came from Porto Alegre. No longer is there. Oh, wow. And coming into the restaurant, I was given the, the Metro D my coat, and he was handing me a caipirinha at the door. Yeah. By the time I sat down, most of it was gone. <laughs> and uh, it was that good. That was, was your first? Yeah. No, it wasn't. I'd had okay. it in, in New York the year before, and I'd made a mental note that in Brazil I had to try this drink. I just didn't realize how important it was to Brazil yeah. until I got there. Yeah. And so I came home two days later, with a Ronaldinho jersey, a pair of soccer shoes, a gift for my wife, and a bottle of cachaça. And that bottle of cachaça was eradicated the next party a few days later in Seattle. When people were like, my friend Charlie, I remember he had two caipirinhas in his hand, hands, and he would yell at me like, why haven't I had this drink before? Because <laughs> he was delicious, right? So... Uh, from that point forward, I still was very engaged in cold heat for years after, but I was yeah. paying attention to cachaça in the U.S., and yeah. I was very frustrated that you couldn't find it, you know, in most places. Or if you did, it was an industrial version of something. There was really no national brand at the time, no distribution. There were a lot of gaps in the product offering that was available to Americans. And eventually, it kind of became a product and a business idea. Mm-hmm. Actually, sitting in the bar at uh, Trader Vic's in Bellevue, which is gone now, on a Saturday night thinking... All those wonderful cachaças from Brazil, why aren't there any of them here? Yeah. So we started to explore that option. And eventually it looked like it was a good idea for a crazy person. Yeah. Yeah. What, um, what, so what, what lessons did, did you learn in the cold heat era that you're applying oh, yes. today? Everything that I'm doing today is based on the lessons I learned from the cold heat era. I would say the first one is not to lose control of the company. The company was doing really well um, when the entrepreneurs were running it, not so well when the professional managers were running it. Mm-hmm. And so all of that has to do with capitalizing the company, finding investors and getting the best deal. So there's a very fine balance between growth and the need for capital for that growth 
and giving away a lot of your company in exchange for that capital. Uh, so I became a lot more careful about that. In fact, when we started Nofogo, um, we decided that we're not going to take any investors at the beginning, not at all. While the company was small and didn't carry much value, we said, we'll just do it as slowly as we have to do it um, until we create a vision, create a foundation, uh, and, and then we'll need to scale it. And at that point, we'll look for investors, but hopefully at that point they'll come because they like what we're doing, not because they want to tell us how to change it, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So that's exactly what we did. Yeah. Uh, and that's why it took longer, but... Ultimately, I look back at where we are today and what the original vision is. And I was looking at some of the original presentations and I, it's exactly as I envisioned it, mm. you know, and that's because we maintain control and we didn't allow others to come in and kind of push that up. So that that's probably lesson number one. Another lesson is that you're only as successful as the people around you and you really have to surround yourself with people whom you want to see as successful. You mm -hmm. know, you really have to have some kind of uh, relationship there that allows you to work, kind of row the boat in the same direction. Yeah. It's, um, it's easy to say, well, here's an experienced person or here's a, a wealthy person who has the things that I need. But if you don't see eye to eye on the vision, then is going to end up in the mud anyway yeah right yeah so they were uh, at Colhi we had so many different interests around the table at the board meetings and i had 10 bosses at one point you know and i was the ceo yeah. <laughs> so yeah. and everybody had their own agenda so uh you know i think it's important to to try to set that vision and obviously you have to be flexible with opportunities that come at you but you need to have your backbone you need to know what that backbone is um with our entire sustainability story is based on the fact that for us being uh, respectful of the environment around us allows us to have a company because if we didn't if we started to to destroy it it wouldn't give us that terroir that makes our sugarcane amazing mm -hmm. it wouldn't give us the cachaça that comes from that sugarcane right we wouldn't have a company if we started to disrespect the environment so that's our place in the world that's that's the foundation that helps us filter every decision big and small so it starts with that naked guy, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, and that's a that's that's a vision, right? I mean, yeah. that's that's a vision that takes um, patience yeah. and like going to that degree of sustainability. Mm -hmm. uh, I would expect that's unique in. I think so. In spirits, in general, um, for sure. In spirits, for sure. Probably in. Spirits. in in Kashasa as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. There are a lot of bad practices in Kashasa. Yeah. A lot of secrets, a lot of closed doors, a lot of people doing things they can't talk about. Or there's this chasm between the producers and the brand owners and importers who live in other countries, mm. uh, and they both hide behind this gap. Producer feels that it's not really important to tell their partner who lives on a different continent that they didn't quite make this Kashasa. Maybe they sourced it from somebody else. Right. And at the same time, the brand owner and importer from that other continent says, well, I don't know the answer to your question because this other person somewhere else makes this product, but I'll get you the answer. And yeah. the answer will never be gotten because the answer is bad. Yeah. You know, there isn't a good practice there. So yeah. um, it, it, we are trying really hard to lead by example, but we often get ticked off and we start to expose people as well. Yeah. Um, and we are a little bit crazy in the way that we, we take that to the extreme when we think it's important for the category but it's also important for the country of brazil and it's important for the whole freaking planet yeah 
you know yeah you have to be a little more responsible going forward yeah yeah so the 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 ethos of mm -hmm. Novo Fogo. Yeah. You look back at growing up in Romania, the mm -hmm. hyperbolic growth of cold heat. Yeah. The next chapter of cold heat. Um, yeah. Can you talk about just those chapters in how your life connect. and how they manifest themselves in terms of how you work with the farmers and how you work with the wellness yeah. events with the bartender? Can you just kind of encapsulate all that yeah I, i'll encapsulate with probably my number one philosophy it's um it's karma i've been in enough conflict of many types to see that what goes around comes around in romania at mm. Colheat, in brazil everywhere mm. it's the same thing it's very logic very logical the things you do will come back at you so you might as well be nice right <laughs> And, uh, and that's really everything. That's yeah. how I run my personal life and my professional life. It's religion. And it applies to all aspects of life, especially after you've been to war in a, in a number of different ways. Yeah. What goes around comes around, Sam. I love it. I mean, I, was, I think that's a, probably a, a perfect response to the, the, to the last question I was going to ask you. I'll still ask it. <laughs> so that last question is just, you know, there are people, like one of the goals of this podcast is to um, serve as a source of inspiration. So yeah. when people are at a crossroads or people trying to make a decision about being more living with more intention or aligning actions with priorities, um, and they hit those, those moments, uh, where they're trying to push through yeah, or just knock down barriers that they've, you know, um, created themselves. Um, what kind of message would you give to uh, that person that's about ready to take that entrepreneurial leap or about ready to take that step toward a, a new path within their career or yeah. about like about ready to embark on a new journey? Well, it's very hard, very easy to get lost in today's world in so many ways because there is a lot of competition. There are 8 billion people living on this planet. The population of the planet doubled in my lifetime, you know, and it'll probably triple before I die. So that creates um, competition for every aspect of life, every resource and every job and every business opportunity. So we are often pressured by these challenges to take shortcuts and adapt really fast and perhaps do some things that we shouldn't do. I would say that if you do that, you will always get lost, you'll always lose. And so um, the best thing to do is to look within yourself and find the best parts of you, you know, the things that really make you shine it could be very simple things it could be one percent of the things you do are good things but there is something that makes you a really good person and if you can focus on those things build those up build them into your business focus your business on that good part of you something that you know really well that is helping you thrive and perhaps has a a role in the community and in the business audience that you're trying to create that should be your path to success because you're going to be good at the thing that you know and who you are. So genuineness is very important. As long as it's built on your best aspects. <laughs> I love it. Um, thank you. You bet you're welcome. Thank, thank you. you. That was a perfect ending.